would, take a copy of God's Word and go to Luke chapter 24. As many of you know, our focus uh, for preaching in September is global missions. Uh, Wes took us there last week from Isaiah 54. I'll go there today from Luke 24. In fact, Luke 24 will be sort of the launching pad for the next three weeks as, uh, as we navigate a host of other passages that I hope will help us understand global missions in relation to the Bible, the Trinity, and the church. So that's where we're going. Um, this week we'll look at the inspired Bible for mission. Next week we'll look at the triune God of mission. And then last week of September we'll look at the empowered church on mission. We make it a point each year to set global missions before you very explicitly because we don't want anything we do here locally to lose sight of what God is doing globally to win for himself worshipers from all 11,235 people groups of the world that we know of, over 3,000 of which still have no access to the gospel and therefore cannot worship God rightly and will perish forever if they don't hear of Jesus and believe in his name for eternal life. All our various labors in care groups and DIG, children's ministry, nursery, um, women's retreat, benevolence to the poor in this city, all of it must serve the onward march of the gospel to all nations because God intends to get glory in saving a people from all nations. We've got to be on board with that and make the right adjustments wherever we're not on board with that because that is God's plan for the world. At least that's what Jesus tells us is God's plan for the world when he opens the disciples' minds to understand the Bible Let me read it to you, beginning in verse 44 of Luke 24. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We pray together. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would use these words to reorient our lives around you and around your purposes in the world to receive worship from people in every tribe tongue, people, and nation. Amen. Three days before we get these words, the disciples have witnessed Jesus die a bloody death. The Romans have dashed to pieces their hopes and dreams when they nailed the disciples' master to a cross. As Luke describes the situation, all seemed lost and at best confusing for the disciples. Even when the disciples hear that Jesus' tomb was now empty, it amounts to a tall tale. Some of them even check it out for themselves and see Jesus missing from where they laid him, and yet they remain sad, shoulders Hung. Despite all that Jesus had told them before so plainly, 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then on the third day be raised. Despite the story Jesus was telling them, they chose to live by a different story. Even with the tomb now empty, the stories they were telling themselves kept them from living in accordance with reality. The disciples needed their eyes opened to a different story. The story of God's mission to save the world through a crucified and risen Christ. So Jesus comes as resurrected Lord and He teaches them. He opens their minds to the truth of God's plan revealed in Scripture. And it's in teaching them the Scriptures that their minds change. That joy rises in their hearts. That their passions transform. Their lives alter. The same is true for you and me. We often live out of step with reality because of the stories we're telling ourselves. Stories that simply aren't true. Whether that's the story of the American dream or material prosperity or rugged individualism or the false assumptions we might be making of others or alarmist conspiracies. We live by the stories we tell ourselves. And like the disciples, our stories are often rooted in unbelief. We don't fully believe the story of the world that God has given us here. But if we are to know Jesus rightly, and if we are to live in light of truth, Jesus must open our eyes to God's story. God's story written here. He must lift us out of our self-absorbed stories and center us on the God-centered story of the Bible. He must jolt us from our complacent world with a vision from His heavenly Word. And I hope Jesus' words do just that for all of us. It would be to our eternal detriment if they do not. So let me note just three points about God's story, God's plan in Scripture, and then see where that meets us in terms of global missions. First of all, God's plan is a sovereign plan. Look at verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice the little word, must. Everything written about me must be fulfilled. God's plan in Scripture cannot be thwarted. It is a sovereign plan. It's a matter of divine necessity and determination. God reveals what He plans to do in Scripture, and this is what's going to happen. Period. Nobody in this room or in this world can write down their plans with such authority and certainty. We make plans all the time, and they get canceled or interrupted. Maybe they turn out differently than what we initially expected. That is because we are not God. When we make our calendars, we don't have infinite knowledge of all things at all times. We don't have infinite wisdom in governing all things at all times. We don't have infinite power to control all things at all times or absolute rule to decree effectively whatever will be. Only one possesses such sovereignty, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And in Isaiah, we see he declares the end from the beginning. From ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my 
purpose. He doesn't just predict the future. He creates the future. His plan is sovereign. The culture around us may say there's no such thing as one story that defines all other stories. But the Bible says otherwise. God's story determines the outcome of all other stories. His plan is sovereign. Whatever is written in Scripture of, God, of God's plan for the world cannot and will not fail. In fact, the disciples witness this certainty of God's plan unfolding before them even as Jesus connects His death and His resurrection with the Scriptures that spoke of it beforehand. Which brings us to another observation about God's plan. Secondly, God's plan is a plan with Christ at the center. God's plan is a plan with Christ at the center. Look again at verses 44 and 46. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, note that, written about me, in the law of Moses, what have we got there? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the prophets, now we've got Joshua through Kings, and Isaiah, Ezekiel, and all the twelve. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms, there's two-thirds of your Bible, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. All the Old Testament anticipates the Christ. His person and his work is the Old Testament's focus. Jesus wants them to get this, and so he gives them a bit of a lesson in how to read their Bibles. We may not have been there to hear Jesus teach the disciples how to read their Bibles, but we do have the disciples' inspired words. We call it the New Testament. And if these writers aren't giving us examples when Jesus applied this or that Old Testament text to himself then they're modeling how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament and they're doing so for us. So take Jesus' sufferings. It says that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Take Jesus' sufferings. The Old Testament anticipates the Christ to suffer in several ways. It reveals patterns like deliverance through the death of the Passover lamb. Or atonement through the sacrifices. Or victory, even through the sufferings of God's anointed king. Each pattern anticipates God's ultimate provision for our sins in the suffering of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament also makes promises like with the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Wes talked about that some last week. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Both Jesus and Peter tell us that refers to Jesus. Or take Jesus' resurrection. The Old Testament anticipates Christ rising from the dead. When God speaks to Moses from the burning bush... Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not of the dead. Later in the prophets, Jonah becomes a picture of Jesus rising from the dead on the third day. Jesus himself says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then the Psalms, like Psalm 16.10 sets forward a similar expectation that God wouldn't abandon His Holy One, His, His, His anointed King to Sheol. He wouldn't abandon Him. He wouldn't allow His Holy One to see 
corruption. And in Acts 2 and 13, the apostles are applying that to Jesus. Jesus' resurrection. The point is this. God revealed His plan in the Old Testament to drive His people to Jesus. The Spirit inspired all these words to magnify Jesus as the centerpiece of all God's purposes in creation and redemption. And when we pour over these words, we see Jesus as God wants us to see Jesus. We don't create categories of our own and fit Jesus into them. The Bible creates our categories and tells us who Jesus is. So take advantage of the cross-references in your Bible if it's got them. When the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, take the time to turn back, see what's going on. There, and begin piecing together God's plan for the world in Christ. He means to transform you with the truth of His unshakable plan to keep Christ central in all things. So, for example, when we pour over God's plan with uh, Adam as the head of the human race. Let's go back to Genesis And we trace that line through the Old Testament to Jesus. We have our eyes open to something glorious about Jesus. Adam was created to bear God's image. And alongside his wife, they were to reflect in their marriage the relationship between Christ and his church. But with Eve... Adam forsook God's word and trusted the schemes of the devil instead. The result was a humanity, guilty in sin, separated from God, dead beneath God's wrath, in a world full of pain and cursed with the scheming traps of the evil one. And the rest of the Old Testament bears this out. But when we get to Jesus... In Luke chapter 3, we find Jesus in a genealogy that stretches not all the way back to Abraham, like Matthew does. It stretches all the way back to Adam. He too, Jesus, is the Son of God, but He is far greater than Adam. Not only has He been conceived by the Holy Spirit, but He doesn't give in to Satan's temptations like Israel did in the wilderness or like Adam did in the garden. Jesus overcomes the temptations by trusting God's word. That's Luke chapter 4. More than that, he causes the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dead to rise, and the darkness to flee, all of which stand as signs that he has come to reverse the effects of the fall. Even more, he deals with our guilt on the cross, undoes the devil's power, and rises from the dead to show it has no hold over him or over anybody he represents. That makes Jesus what the Bible calls the new and greater Adam. He comes to lead a new humanity, those who trust in him. He comes to lead them out of sin and into life. And that's true for anybody in this room. You believe Jesus is the the Adam, the new Adam, the greater Adam, who comes to lead you out of sin and into life, He will save you. You will be part of that new humanity. He will restore God's image to you, despite the fact that you have marred it altogether with your sin. The access to the tree of life that God cut off from Adam, Jesus gives it in full to all peoples who come to him by faith. We see it in Revelation 22. We've gone from Genesis to Revelation, and it is the story of Christ, just from reading and following the storyline of Adam. That means Jesus is the only answer to humanity's problem of sin and to our problem with sin. 
And that message applies to every people group in the entire world. We go to the nations and we tell them, there was a man and because of his sin, you are guilty before God. And then there came another man and because of his sinlessness and cross and resurrection, you can have the forgiveness of that sin and life eternal. That's what we tell them. But we only get that message when we see Jesus as the centerpiece of God's plan from beginning to end. And that's just one connection to the Old Testament story of hundreds more that Jesus and His apostles make. He delivers us from the coming wrath like the ark delivered Noah in the flood. In the same way that the waters of judgment did not kill those who were in the ark, the same is true for those who are in Christ. Because the waters of God's wrath swept over Jesus on the cross in our place. He fulfills God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through his offspring. Because he is the offspring of Abraham who will bless all nations. He delivers us from bondage to sin in ways patterned after God freeing Israel from Egypt. In the same way God rescued them from slavery Jesus rescues us from our slavery to sin. He meets the law's demands as Israel's faithful representative. He brings all the sacrifices and priestly duties to their appointed end and opens the way of forgiveness to God's people where they did not have it before. He ascends to David's throne as the supreme universal king and rules over the nations with righteousness and peace and justice. From, beginning, from, be, from the beginning with Adam... All through Israel's story to the final day when all nations bow and worship Jesus, God's plan has Christ at the center. He's the only son who can accomplish all God's purposes in creation and redemption. He's the only person that can save you. There's one more point about God's plan that's married to this one. And we've got to get it down. God's plan is a plan with missions as its overflow. It's a plan with missions as its overflow. Everything in the Old Testament has anticipated the day when God's Son would come and deal with sin lift the curse of death, and vanquish Satan's stronghold. But the Old Testament also anticipated what the results of that victory would mean for the church and the nations. Verse 24. Thus it is written... So he's talking about what is written in the Old Testament. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer... And on the third day, rise from the dead and, please get this, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Do you hear what He's saying? He's saying we cannot read our Bibles apart from Him being the center and missions being the overflow of that center. If Jesus is the fountain of life, there are ripples of life going to the ends of the earth. The risen Christ and global missions are linked. Inasmuch as the Old Testament envisions a Christ suffering and rising for the nations, it envisions a church laying down their lives to win the nations. There's no such thing as a risen Christ who does not win 
All the nations he died to save, and we are the means by which they are won. The bloody cross and the empty tomb mean there's a multitude of people from all nations who will repent and follow Jesus when they hear his name proclaimed. Our missionary mandate is as necessary to God's plan in winning the nations as the cross and resurrection of the Son of God. If we read God's word with an agenda that's contrary to treasuring Christ and conforming our lives to his mission, we do not read God's word rightly. The whole Bible, Jesus is saying, promises missions to the nations in as much as it promises the Messiah dying for the nations. We see it expected in the law of Moses. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Your descendants will be like the stars. Just look at them. We see it expected in the prophets. Wes took us there last week in Isaiah. The servant does work on behalf of Yahweh. He extends his rule to the ends of the earth and all the nations erupt in joy and joyous praise. His servant would be a light for the nations, Isaiah 49 says, that God's salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. And we also see this mission's overflow expected throughout the Psalms. The clearest example is probably Psalm 22, that I could find. Psalm 22, we see, an, expect, we see the, an expectation for God's anointed king to suffer for his people. His sufferings are so great, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The thing Jesus quotes on the cross. And at the end, by the time you get to the end of Psalm 22, the results of his sufferings lead to this result. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. So what have we got from Jesus here to open our eyes? We've got a sovereign plan centered on Christ with missions as the overflow. That's why the Bible exists. The Bible exists to reveal God's plan in Jesus Christ and to fuel worldwide missions in light of Jesus Christ. The scriptures exist because God is a missionary God. He didn't have to say anything to us. And He's Speaks. Why? Name. He wants His name known among all peoples of the earth. He wants all peoples glorifying His Son. So He speaks, and we have it here. He wants the world to know that despite its rebellion against Him, He's gathering worshipers through His Son for their everlasting joy. He is so jealous for your joy in worshiping Him. He sent His Son to deliver you from all that hindered that worship. And He's done the same for countless multitudes from all people's groups of the world. And He's gathering them now. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And the floodgates of salvation have been blown wide open to the nations. The plan of God to gather the nations is now. And this is where God's plan in Scripture meets us in terms of global missions. Life isn't so much about how God fits into the story of our individual lives. Life is about how our individual lives fit into his story of mission to the world. One thing I fear for us and for the broader evangelical church is this. I fear that many Christians look to God's word to find therapeutic comfort for a life they would have lived anyway without Jesus. Jesus' words right here tell us that if that's the way we're using the Bible, we're abusing the Bible. 
The Bible is God's revelation of himself and his sovereign plan with Christ at the center and missions to all peoples that they may see and know and celebrate him with us. Meaning, when we read the Bible, we're longing for two things to happen in our souls. A deeper treasuring of Jesus in all his kaleidoscopic glory as we're taking what the apostles are telling us and pointing, taking the Old Testament and making the connections with Jesus. And we see him as beautiful as he is. We want a deeper treasuring of Jesus in all his glory and a greater passion to see the nations worshiping him. Those two things have got to grip everything we're about if we're his disciples. It's what gripped the early church. I mean, think of Philip going up to the Ethiopian eunuch, (laughs) teaching him that Jesus died for his sins from where? Isaiah 53. James, the apostle, justifies the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles using Amos Nine. They're getting the picture. They're putting the pieces together. Paul supports his mission to the Gentiles using Isaiah 49.6. That's a passage that's referring to the servant of Jesus and he's applying it to himself. Why? Because the servant's not dead. He's alive and he's making Paul work to win the nations to himself. The servant's mission continues through the church. Paul even bookends his longest theological letter, Romans, with God's plan to win the nations. Go there with me. He's telling us the same thing Jesus is telling us in Luke 24 of what the Bible is about. Romans 1. All right, he's set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We've got scriptures there. What are they about? Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. That's Christ at the center. What's the purpose? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations. That's missions as the overflow. Then turn to chapter 16 of Romans. Chapter 16, verse 25. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been na- has, has been, and through the prophetic writings has been made to... Had, uh, if I can get my words right here. Too pumped up right now. All right. But has been, now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. You know, we often jump into Romans for its rich theology. To prove original sin. To prove justification by faith. To prove unconditional election. To prove perseverance of the saints. But sometimes we do it not realizing that the entirety of Paul's theology is set in the context of missions. The whole impetus of writing Romans isn't just to equip the church in doctrine, but to ensure that doctrine moves them to get him to Spain. He isn't giving them a systematic textbook to read in their lazy boy. He's giving them a theology that will help them die to see Spain come to Christ. 
His whole letter is framed by two things, Christ and the obedience of all nations. Our theology has got to do the same, Redeemer. If our theological foundations are truly and thoroughly biblical, they will drive every part of our being into God's mission. God's plan that we've been talking about means theology is for missional impact. Not merely winning arguments. God's centeredness should make us long to increase the volume of His worship on earth. Total depravity should fill us with compassion to the world that does not know and cannot come to God apart from Christ. Election should fuel our passion to preach to all peoples without distinction since God can save whomever He pleases. Christ's globally particular redemption means people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will stand before the throne. And that gives impetus for evangelism. Theology exists for missions. So, Redeemer, you dig the foundation of your house deep in Christ and then preach with great hope that God will fill that house with the nations. Also, when we're gripped by His sovereign, Christ-centered, missions-driven plan, we won't be wasting our lives. Remember, God's plan is a sovereign plan. If we're on board with what He's doing among the nations, we can live with assurance that our lives will not be wasted. Our lives will be full of reward, reward of God's presence. Even if we experience setbacks or rejections, right? You know where I'm going. The big idea on Sunday nights. Some of you have worked your tails off to tailor a dinner and Bible study for our neighborhood for three months. The generosity towards this neighborhood from you is just all over the place, inviting hundreds of people to come. And you've seen very little to no response to your invitations. Some of you have proclaimed the repentance for the forgiveness of sins, just like we read here in Luke 24, to the people in your neighborhoods. And you have at times been rejected. But if God's plan is sovereign, we can rest assured that God is in control and working all things for His glory and our good. More than that, we can be confident that if we're about His business in winning the nations, He'll give us wisdom in coming up with new strategies to reach the people around us. New ways to die to ourselves to reach the others around us. That might mean more of us move into the neighborhood. It might mean others of us move into the apartment complexes and win the trust of some very difficult cultures. It might mean some of us lay hold of Christ in new ways and adopt a family for a weekly Bible study. We won't hesitate to equip you and to set you up with folks we've already met. And as we pour into those around us locally, let's never lose sight of equipping each other to make disciples globally as well. For some of you, that will mean that you eventually move to another land to reach one of the 3,000 people groups who have no access to the gospel. No active church planting movement to reach them at all. Others of you simply need to open your eyes to the mosques that are going up in your neighborhoods. Or the Hindu temples that are cropping up all over the Metroplex. Andy and I visited three of them last Saturday. Had to say no the first time in my life to eating idol food. Never thought 1 Corinthians 10 would come in to play there. And that's here. The nations are here. It's part of the reason Andy and I went. We were actually learning how to reach the unreached peoples who have moved here. Like ref- among refugees and others who have who've come into the States. If we live to reach people with Jesus, 
God's plan assures us that our lives won't be wasted. But God's plan also becomes a challenge for us not to waste our lives. God's plan isn't going to peter out because of our disobedience. If we choose to sit on the sidelines, ignoring the fact that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, Jesus doesn't lose, we lose. Christ will remove His lampstand from us and He will finish the mission with the hundreds of other churches in Palestine and Samoa and South Korea. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell released a study last year that showed in terms of missionaries sent per million church members, so we're doing proportionately here, Palestine. Palestine comes in at the top. 3,401 missionaries. Followed by Ireland, Malta, Samoa, and South Korea. Whereas the United States, ninth at 614, with all its wealth, resources, and millions of churches. And get this as well, the country that received the most missionaries, received the most missionaries last year, is the United States of America. With 32,400 coming in. And that's not mere immigration. They're coming to make disciples. They see the need. They see the darkness. Better than we can. So this sovereign plan reminds us not to waste our lives and assures us that if we're living for God's mission, then we won't be wasting our lives. Here's another place God's plan meets us, and this comes from Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God. It's a thick one. It's a shorter one called the... I don't know what it's called, actually. Christopher Wright, look it up. It's published by Zondervan. This comes from the mission of God, the big ones. He says this. This vision of reality, we've we've been talking about this morning from Luke 24, turns inside out and upside down some of the common ways in which we're accustomed to thinking about the Christian life and the kinds of questions that we're inclined to ask. It constantly forces us to open our eyes to the big picture rather than shelter in the cozy narcissism of our own small world. He goes on. We want to be driven by a purpose that has been tailored just right for our own individual lives. When we should be seeing the purpose of all of life wrapped up in the great mission God has for the whole creation. We talk about the problems, this is still right, we talk about the problems of applying the Bible to our lives, which oftentimes means we modify the Bible somewhat to fit the assumed reality of the life we live. What would it mean to apply our lives to the Bible instead? Assuming the Bible to be the reality to which we are called to conform ourselves. He says, I may wonder what kind of mission God has for me when I should be asking what kind of me God wants for his mission. I thought Madison's testimony last week was exemplary of that. He's saying when we come to the Bible, or better, when the Bible confronts us, the Bible defines reality for us. It reorients our lives on God and His agenda in Jesus Christ. It forces me to ask those unsettling questions. Instead of, how do I squeeze disciple-making into my schedule, it asks, how is my schedule going to serve making disciples? Instead of, am I going to have enough margin for Friday Netflix and Saturday football and Sunday golf 
if I make this or that commitment. It asks, how will all the time the Lord does give me contribute to the spread of His fame? Instead of, how much room should I leave in my budget for my hobbies and treats? It asks, how will the Bible shape my giving to save people from eternal torment? The Bible shapes the life questions we ask, not the other way around. It doesn't begin with our values and then leave us to determine how Christ and His mission fit into those values. It tells us what is valuable, namely Jesus. And then challenges us to conform ourselves to Him and His truth. Even when you think you know whatever this or that truth is in Scripture, every time you come back to it, you are again met with ways you don't fully believe it yet. We're all kind of like Peter. We know the tomb is empty. We just need our eyes opened. But get this. The same cure for Peter is also available to you and me. Because Jesus is still alive. And we have the same scriptures that they had. And he's alive to help us understand these scriptures. To open our eyes as well. To change our values as well. To transform our passions as well. How do I know he wants to do this? Because of his cross. He wanted to give himself for you. That you might not suffer the wrath of God. He's going to give you understanding into his word. He didn't die to leave us as we are. He died to change us into what we should be. So Redeemer, here's what I encourage you to do. Very basic. Keep reading your Bibles. To treasure Jesus Christ more deeply, and to engage in missions more passionately. If the Word isn't part of your life or your family life, set a goal to open it tonight before you put the kids to bed or before you and your wife lay down to sleep. If you're single, find a brother or sister to discuss what you read in the Word often and make it a regular part of your diet. Jesus didn't ignite the disciples' passion apart from the Scriptures. He did it by helping them understand the Scriptures. They were written to reveal God's sovereign plan with Christ at the center and missions as the overflow. And then, as you're reading, this will be two, so read the Bible often. Here's number two. Let that plan of God shape all that you are and do and then pray for God to open your eyes to the steps you need to take to get there. One small step Rachel and I are taking more recently is evaluating how many little treats we purchase just here and there. Whether that's from fast food or Starbucks or whatever. And we're doing so with the hopes that it will free up more funds to help support her sister and brother-in-law to take the gospel into the Congo in addition to our first commitments here. Some of you will have the opportunity to bring this vision that we've been talking about to bear on your pocketbook even today. Jansen's going to come and tell us what the Lord was doing through her in England. Jansen is looking to raise support to go to England to strengthen a church plant. How might the risen Christ and God's worldwide purpose for the nations lead you to give generously to her? It might mean you put a home project on hold or the new car on hold. It might mean you don't buy wine or chocolate for six months. (sighs) Others of you are in school, sort of coasting along, just to check off, and I know because I talked to you, just to check off the next box in the curriculum. It's just something I have to do 
I'm going to have to have it to get a job one day. How might this word correct your view of your education? So that every subject helps you think harder and more critically in getting the gospel to all peoples. Your education is for compassion to the nations. I don't care if it's math or English lit. I hated reading and writing growing up. I didn't read my first book cover to cover until I was a senior in college. I bought Cliff Notes. But when I read that book, I didn't know reading could be so good. could deepen my understanding of who God is and teach me how to engage the world. That book was Don't Waste Your Life, by the way. So your education is from compassion to the nations, not just to get a job. The same is true for your vocation. Right? Ephesians 4. Work heartily unto the Lord. You want to do your work hard with your hands so that you might have money. Why do you have the money in order to give to all those who receive? You work for mission. We're all in different places. But we all possess the same inspired Bible which awakens us to Christ's glory and makes us competent for His mission. The question we should all walk away with today is not a matter of if I should be involved in global missions, but how. God already thrusted you into the mission when He caused you to be born again. And He will walk with you to show you how to participate until He comes again. I'm not saying all of you have to pick up and leave and try to engage one of those 3,000. There are people in this city that need to be reached as well. But all of us have a part, part and a role to play. And He will show us how He wants us to participate as we look to His Word and minister in the church. Wes, you want to come pray?